This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Boy, did I irritate some of you yesterday because I was talking about that 58-page report on Hamilton's LRT future. It created a big firestorm. Why? Well, I don't agree with an LRT in Hamilton. You should know that. You should know exactly where I stand on this issue. And that way you can take from it what you want, what you don't want. But, you know, the whole argument is that the LRT is wanted by some and not by others. And this report exposes, I guess, another side of this uh, billion-dollar investment. Hamilton Councillor Terry Whitehead uh, says that the report exposes things like the route, maybe not the right route, the low ridership numbers and impact to businesses in there. We'll talk about that report with the actual author of the report. Um, But I did mention, through experience, the devastating impact that an LRT could have on area businesses. I think this is absolutely vital to be discussed. I've talked to businesses in other communities where rapid transit construction absolutely destroyed their lives and their communities, uh, and they never recovered. People changed their shopping habits, their eating habits, where they drove around. And, and those stories, believe it or not, are actually unfolding right now in Kitchener-Waterloo. And I talked to a couple of those businesses earlier this morning. One is uh, Jay Essa. He owns a fencing business. And here's what he had to say. You own a fencing business in, in Kitchener-Waterloo. How has the LRT construction affected your bottom line, your life? Well, it affected uh, everything we got here. Like, uh, put it this way, off of $600,000 worth of cash and carry, we're down to about 150000 So that's almost $350,000, $400,000 down in the cash and carry. And we're lucky. We're, we're contractors, so most of our guys, they go to the job site and do the job, comparing to the lots of businesses that they're out there, they depend on the cash and carry walking customers, they're you know, they're closing their shops. It's down 80% or 90% of their 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 business. What, what are people saying in the area? I mean, I, I've talked to business owners in the past who have been affected by this kind of thing in other cities. Overall, are, are there people that have, you know, a buyer's remorse for this LRT? Well, you, you know what, in the end of the day, you, it doesn't matter how royal customers you have, and, and, and they try, but by going through the traffic and sitting for an hour, you know what, you can do it once, twice, after that, you just, you can't do it anymore. Like, even ourselves, going to downtown Waterloo, we used to, you know, go to the restaurant, we don't go there anymore. It's just because it's too much of a hassle to get to the place that we used to go. And and that's what's happening to all these businesses. It's not because we don't want to go to them. It's just it's a hassle. It takes an hour to get to any places in Waterloo right now, Waterloo region, like anywhere in Kitchener-Waterloo. It's a chaos everywhere. Like you talk to average customers, will tell you it's a chaos. The walking, pedestrian people, is a chaos. The wheelchair is a chaos. There's no, you would come in and, and drive through the region, you will see after five minutes driving through, you will say, wow, this is upside down. The whole city is upside down. What would you tell the Hamiltonians? I mean, this is a very big debate in Hamilton, to have the LRT or not. What would you tell Hamiltonians that they should know before this is built or, or shovels go in the ground? Yeah, honestly, I tell them, and I would, what I did in the last two years when I was in election, don't waste your money on this LRT. It's traveling 13.5 kilometers an hour. Invested where the you know most of us is driving cars right now, 
the electricity is coming to the cars, all electrical car coming in. The cost of the car is going to be cheaper, uh, less maintenance. You know, the buses, Mercedes-Benz had a new bus. It's an electrical bus, and it's a Wi-Fi, and, and it's a automatic driver, so you don't even need a driver. And this is just now. Think about it 10 years from now. These buses are going to just get better and better. And with the train, the track, you only traveling on those tracks. So if the city goes up and down, you're, you're done. You're wasting your money. Jay, are you going to survive this uh, this building, uh, you know, at the end of it financially? Uh, honestly, if it wasn't for me going out, like getting the contract out, uh, my my employee going out, we would never have survived it, no. I'll be honest with you. It, think about it, $350,000, $400,000 dropping in sale. Who can survive that? My neighbors don't have a million. The neighbor beside me, he, he, you know, three of his tenants, because he rent the unit, they left. They couldn't afford it. They said, you know what, nobody's coming, so we're leaving. The next guy down the, you know, the storage, they're down 75%. So anybody on this Northfield is a chaos. It's not only here. You go to King Street, where it's all these businesses closing down. McDonald's closed down. Tim Horton closed down. If these guys are closing down deeper pockets, think about the smaller businesses. My bank manager was telling me that most of the owners, they're taking mortgages on their houses to survive it. Now, that tell you, there's, they're just going out of control. Jay, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jay. Now, if you think about that, and I spoke to Jay just before the show, um, you know, if you hear a McDonald's, a big chain kind of franchise like that going out of business. When does McDonald's go out of business? Well, when people can't get to it. So think of it, you know, if they can go out of business, mom and pop shops don't stand a chance. I talked to Ron Hall. He owns a Domino's and his experience is this. We're talking to Ron in Kitchener-Waterloo. You're a local business owner of a Domino's pizza. Um, Tell me, how has LRT in Kitchener-Waterloo affected you and your business? Well, because we're a delivery business, uh, our delivery times are very important to our franchisor, Domino's Corporate. And my delivery times were just destroyed. Like we went from like 23 or 24 minutes, like 45 minutes. That doesn't meet any of Domino's standards and none of my customer standards. So uh, I was supposed to have uh, renovated my store at that location as of April 2015. And that stretch of on that stretch of road, 7-Eleven closed within about three or four weeks of the start of construction. And uh, the McDonald's closed about two months later. And then a, like a, a funeral home that's been in the city for, I have no idea how long, had to close and they had to move. And there's all, little, all kinds of little businesses have been affected completely by it. Do you think so, you'll survive uh, this? If I didn't have another store and I hadn't been in business for a long time, I would have been dead in the water. And, Dom- and Domino's is very accommodating, too. What, so, uh, what would you say, Ron, to Hamiltonians who are really, you know, some are very excited about an LRT. They look to Kitchener-Waterloo as, as being kind of uh, forward-thinking. What would you say uh, Hamiltonians should know about this? But the problem with the region and the city, you know, they're completely ignoring the businesses that are being completely affected by this, right? They're over a year behind what their projections were. Ron, yeah. thank you so much for joining us. Okay, thank Thanks. you. Thanks. All right, so that was just a couple of local business owners in Kitchener-Waterloo, and the reason I I wanted to have their input is because, uh, you know, I've heard a lot of people say how wonderful the LRT is in Kitchener-Waterloo. It it may be for some people, but 
I'm hearing from more and more businesses. There was another uh, business uh, person that got in touch with me that they're just absolutely being decimated by this project that is running way, way over time in being built. So yes, an LRT can be good. It can be very, very detrimental. But the report itself came under fire, that it was just, it was erroneous. It wasn't right. It was cherry-picked information. I'm hearing all sorts of, of comments about it. So I thought I would just go to the man himself, the guy who wrote it, the author of the report. His name is Howard Rabb, and he joins us now in studio. Great to have you here with us. Great to be here. What what stood out in this report for you when you were doing it, when you were conducting it and putting the numbers? What were the, the main uh, takeaways of this report for you? Well, you know, when we, uh, when we started uh, looking at these numbers, we started basically just looking at various studies. Uh, Councillor White had wanted to have a, a greater understanding of the issue uh, so that when, you know, interviewed and when when these things came forth at, at Council, he, he'd sort of be better prepared. So we really del- started delving into the, the reports issued by the city and by Metrolinks. And what stuck out for us was, you know, things were looking very, very positive. And so we wanted to go beyond those numbers and actually look at the reports that informed those, or rather the studies that informed those reports. And so that's when we started looking into sort of the empirical studies, things from McMaster and Harvard and the Federal Trade, uh, or sorry, Federal Transport Association in the United States, University of Utah, et cetera. So we wanted to sort of see uh, a more fulsome view of what of what this looks like in North America than just what we're, we were getting uh, at the in the city reports. And what what are the, the three takeaways for you of why you believe that maybe the numbers that the city is putting forward are not w- what they seem? Well, I mean, for starters, we know that the numbers that the city put forth before, the things that were in IBI, uh, the, thing, the things that were in the IBI report, the things that were in the, the Rapid Ready report, we, we know those were wrong. Um, we know that city staff are now coming back and saying, you know, we're redoing those. We have a shorter route now. And obviously, this is correct. The, the route is shorter than was originally proposed. So the ridership numbers are, are different. The operating numbers are different. Every number that we saw in Rapid Ready and IBI are now all different than what was assumed originally. So really, the first thing we saw is we need to we need to get a good handle on these numbers because one of the main arguments I mean on the transit side for doing LRT versus just more buses is that your cost goes down obviously the the more people who are riding your LRT the lower your cost per passenger is but if you don't have that critical mass your operating cost per passenger can actually be higher so we started looking at things like what are what's our current ridership on the B line what's the growth of the ridership what's the peak ridership of an LRT If one were to be built and it's rush hour in Hamilton, what's that peak time of moving people look like? Well, we don't know what that is right now because they haven't done the new ridership projections. Um, in Rapid Ready, they estimated um, at the uh, what they called their day one low end of 1,000 riders peak direction, peak time, which uh, basically our current beeline is 444 people peak direction, peak time. 444 444 people. people. Yep. That's at peak on, time. On the beeline. Now, there's other people who are also on the local well, well, I want to stop at that number because you're asking... Asking, I mean, we're asking the province, and I happen to be a taxpayer in the province of Ontario, so we're all investing in this thing. A yep. billion dollars to move 444 people at peak time? Yes. Um, that's I, I don't mean to look surprised, but I'm surprised. I thought the numbers were like up in the, I mean, the city had it at anywhere from 1,800 to 2,000. 
Well, those were their high-end projections that came in rapid ready. Now, of course, those are all being redone now because they they don't, uh, from what we were told, because the route is, is shorter now, they, they don't believe that those are the same. So they're all redoing the, those projections. But I mean, they're, they're largely assuming that a lot of people will stop taking the local bus service and will move to the LRT so that they're assuming more people will want to walk farther to get to their stations, uh, etc. The other thing that really stuck out for us is another argument on the transit side for LRT is that it's faster than a bus. We've heard that many, many times. Um, in the Metrolinks report, you know, it's very clear, oh, this is much, much faster. So, you know, that's great. But in the Metrolinks report, there's a footnote that says, well, actually, it's not faster. And I thought, well, that's odd. So we started calling staff and say, what are our projected, you know, times on this thing? And we, uh, and versus what are our times right now on the Beeline bus? So the Beeline bus right now, according to our former transit director, David Dixon, is 25 minutes from the Queenston traffic circle to McMaster. And according to the LRT office, their current estimates, and they may revise those, but the current, uh, what they're working at, and, and this is actually on the website, the email right from them, is 25 minutes from Queenston Traffic Circle to McMaster. So it's it's the same speed. So essentially, if I'm taking the other, I'm going to take, I'm going to stay in my car. I'm just going to stay in my car because you're not saving me any time if I if I'm to believe those numbers. I want to play you a clip of Sam Marula, who, of course, you know, is a Ward 4 City Council. He appeared this morning on Bill Kelly's show talking to Jamie West, and here's what he had to say about the report. I'm a little taken aback only because Terry has said to me directly that he supports the LRT, that he's trying to focus it on trying to make it better. He's now crossed the line to actually not trying to make it better, but trying to sabotage it. Clearly, uh, clearly it's illustrated in the fact that he's, see- he's searching for empirical data. He claims that he's looking for imperial- empirical data, but puts out a scientifically flawed report, which again is another conflict uh, and a contrast to what He's saying versus what he's doing. What do you uh, say back to that comment? You, you, you're essentially cherry picking or, or lying about the numbers. Well, we're certainly not lying about the numbers, and you know I'm not going to speak for for Councillor Whitehead, but I can speak for the, the you know the report that you know I worked on, and then obviously the councillor was involved in because it was you know on his website. the The numbers are what the numbers are, and the the studies that we looked at were coming from universities, from McMaster, who you know one of their researchers disagrees with our methodology. There really isn't a methodology. This is not a scientific study we did. We looked at various reports, we brought the information together that raised real questions. And and I would throw back to, to Councillor Mule, you know, and I, re- I respect him a great deal. You know, I've talked to him many, many times. You know, I would throw back to him. I said, these raise concerns that any LRT supporter should take a serious look at and say, okay, I want this to be a success. We're going to spend a billion dollars and we're going to build an LRT. But that's step one. I want more LRTs. I want them to go more places. I want them to be longer. I want them to go up to the mountain into the burbs. But we're not going to get there if we don't do this one right. So if we ignore the warning signs that we have right now and we don't try to address them, if we don't look at ways we can get people out of their car and onto the LRT, if we don't find ways to get the operating cost uh, on the LRT to be comparable and ultimately better than the existing bus service we have, when it comes time to build more, even if this goes through and it goes through to more, if, when it comes time to build more, where's the political will going to be when the one we built costs so much money? And I think that's a valid uh, point you make. And I, and I appreciate your insight. And I know we'll continue having this conversation. But I thank you for coming in and talking about this, Howard. Thank you. Thanks so much. And, and I think it's important. Look, if the LRT is to be built, and it very well may be built do it right, as Howard says. You only have one shot at this to get it right and make sure it serves all, not just a few. So so I'll stay open-minded on this. I, I don't think you need one in Hamilton, but 
It's been done wrong so many times, so many times at such a huge cost for people. And, and look at Toronto. They got the cars wrong. They got the routes wrong. They got the play. I mean, they have spent billions in wasted opportunity. So if you're going to do it, do it right. And I think the one thing that this report does open is that more conversations needed, more consultation before those shovels go in the ground. We will continue having this conversation and we will continue to get both sides of the story because I think that's fair and I think it's deserved on the issue. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. On Monday, 1034 AM Ontario, congratulations, you hit the 300 billion mark for debt. What an achievement. What an achievement in this country. Yeah, I mean, look, it's a number we cannot comprehend. Most of us don't understand it. I don't understand what it means. So the easiest way I can kind of put this into perspective is to say... To all of us, to every man, woman, and child in this province, you now owe over $21,000 of debt. And the number's going up. Because you'll recall just last week we had the conversation that the Financial Accountability Office issued a warning to the Liberals that they better get their spending in check, revealing another $50 billion is going to be added. But apparently it's falling on deaf ears because the Liberals are still moving full steam ahead on spending over $150 billion on infrastructure projects. And they still claim that they're going to balance the budget by the next election. That in itself is a conversation to be had because I'm not sure how they're going to make all these numbers work. I was really bad in math, like the dumbest person in the class. So I can't figure out how they're going to figure out these numbers, but apparently they know a lot more than we do, but they're going to balance the budget. Let's bring in Catherine Swift. She's with Working Canadians. Hi there, Catherine. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Alex. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I'm talking to air. Um, Why should people care about these numbers? (laughs) Well, I guess it depends if you like to eat or if you want your children to have jobs. You know, minor little details like that. Um, it's this has been of course a long-term process of getting to this massive level of debt as as you well know ontario is the worst they call it the the techies call it subnational which means not a country basically but they are the most indebted subnational jurisdiction in the world in the world (laughs) and and here in in, in a province that used to lead the country in growth, used to be the driving force behind the Canadian economy. Now I have not under McGinty initially, of course, and now Wynn. And, and the, the wasting, and also we should care. I mean, even if, you know, our grandkids can't get jobs down the road or whatever, we should care because our infrastructure is horribly deteriorating because they're spending all their money on all the wrong things. Look at our hydro bills. We know people are making a decision between hydro and eating, even today. And it's, it's going to get worse and worse as all of our you know, various uh, budget officers and, and, and uh, accountability officers and so on have told us. So this affects every one of us in a very realistic way, uh, in the pocketbook, of course, uh, but ultimately the weakening of the economy, the pouring of money into government, um, employee uh, wages and then pensions that are grossly underfunded, and on and on and on. Uh, the average taxpayer should be irate about this. I mean, if you, if you look at it, I mean, people get their heads around a $16 orange juice. If a politician goes out and buys that, people are outraged. They want that person fired. But they can't seem to get their head around these monstrous numbers. But essentially, Catherine... We're no longer investing in anything 
good. We're essentially throwing money away to pay down interest, correct? Totally. And yeah, I, I think you're right. The, the $16 orange juice or whatever. Everybody, everybody can relate to that because they have an orange juice every day or whatever, and they know what it, it costs. But, and then these kind of numbers are totally mind-boggling, but that's why they're so worrisome. And I think if you look at the, the, way, it's, the way it's phrased, of course, helps people understand it. We're paying over $11 billion a year just servicing the debt at a time when interest rates are at record lows. Those interest rates tick up even a bit, and we are going to see uh, a big crunch coming for Ontario. And, and it's not the only jurisdiction in the country, but it is the worst by far. So, um, you know, for, for your average Ontarian, uh, this, this is your future. This is the future of your children and grandchildren. It's affecting you today in excessive costs because the government has misallocated uh, money so badly towards things that hurt average Ontarians and hurt our bottom line, as, as we've seen. We're talking to Catherine Swift of Working Canadians. If you want to get in on a conversation, 905-645-3221 or, of course, on your cell at star 9900. You may not care about this. I mean, maybe you are okay with it or maybe you're outraged. But if you want to be part of the conversation or you ha- if you have a question for Catherine, she's the one to ask because Catherine is working behind the scenes to find all the things that the government doesn't want you to know. So all those little loopholes, she's the gal who can, you know, answer those questions about where is the money going. But, you know, on on the devil's advocate side, Catherine, a lot of people will say, hey, if you want roads and you want bridges and you want transportation, you have to spend, and that's what this government is doing. And you say what? Well, what I say is, first of all, they're spending all kinds of money. Uh, look at our so-called green energy policies, which are, are, are wasting billions. Uh, I, I love that, well, I love perversely, I, I love the fact that we actually conserved hydro in Ontario and we got rewarded by it by a rate hike uh, in the last few months. I mean, that kind of stuff, it's hard to make that up, you know. That, that sounds like some fantasy world where you conserve and you get punished for it by paying more for, for hydro. Um, we see uh, government unions getting collectively billions of dollars from uh, this government. We've seen the payoffs time and time again, things that should be illegal. We've seen things like the, the concealing of the, or the deleting of massive numbers of emails around that whole gas plant scandal. We see money wasted. And so my simple answer to that question would be, if we hadn't wasted so many billions on useless things, we could put it into roads and, and uh, hospitals and the kind of infrastructure that we care about. And also, if we had that 11 and change billion a year that we're, we're spending to just finance the, the debt we have, and that's only going up, um, we could put that into services that people want. So, I mean, I don't think anybody minds paying taxes if they're assured it is being spent sensibly on the kinds of things the vast majority of people want, but that is not the case in Ontario. I know, you know, transportation is always the big talking point, but I also know that hospitals uh, are, are being severely, um, you know, cut. And one of the areas that's hurting them the most are the hydro costs. And I don't think people really under, I don't think people even give it a thought that, you know, hospitals run 24-7, 365 days a year. They have a lot of equipment, lots of lights, and they're hemorrhaging costs that should go to patient care to pay for well, things like hydro costs. Yeah. Everybody's hit by high hydro. Everybody's hit. And we, we saw Bonnie Lissick, uh, you know, the Auditor General for Ontario, tell, tell us how many billions, was $37 billion 
wasted, and, and that's only going up in future years. This is serious money we're talking about here. So, again, if the money was spent sensibly, then I don't think we'd, you know, we'd have to have these discussions at all. But we know it's not being spent sensibly, and they're also hiding it. And you alluded to that earlier, Alex, that they are, they are concealing the books from even the officials who are, who are supposed, like the financial accountability officer, is supposed to have access, and even their office is saying they can't get the information they need to make the proper, um, you know, analyses to show where the money's going and if it's being spent uh, wisely and so on. But again, what it comes back to is the ballot box. As long as we Ontarians keep reelecting these crooks, and I'm sorry, they are crooks, uh, we deserve what we get, I guess. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people, I think, shrug their shoulders. and I'm hearing a lot of people just say, you know what, I give up. I I just literally, what am I going to do? I'm just one person. And I keep saying, you're one person, but you do have a vote. And if you do sit home, then you're part of the problem. And I don't care who anyone votes for, but if you reward this, I mean, there's other candidates, there's Greens, there's uh, Conservatives, there's NDP. You can vote anybody else, uh, including the tree down the street. Uh, But if you keep rewarding the same party for the same mistakes, you know, well, no question. And I mean, they've used our tax dollars against us many times. We see, of course, the unions, many of which are, in fact, the majority of which are government unions. In other words, we're paying our tax dollars go to help them exist. And they come out with ads pr- promoting the liberals because the liberal, it's, it's like a, it's, it's like a, it's, it's a corrupt system. And, and they're, they're fundraising. We saw just in the, in the paper in the last day or so, um, the, the notion that uh, assistance to ministers yeah. are going out basically saying to companies, if you don't come to this fundraiser at ten grand a pop or whatever it is, then you won't have access to the minister. Yeah, and I, wanna, like and I want to North Korea. Or something. I want I want to spend some time on that because it is the Globe and Mail's Adrian Mora who I think has done fantastic work alongside a couple of other people at Queens Park in exposing the things that aren't supposed to be exposed. And you're referring specifically to this report that says you know liberal uh, ministers, those who help them, the the aides to these ministers are now also party fundraisers. So, yeah. in other words, they're now trying to arrange meetings by selling tickets to ministers. How They say it's not illegal, but how is that ethical? Oh, well, it's not ethical at all, and it should be illegal. <laughs> totally should be illegal. And so how is this okay? I mean, the government says that they are implementing policy that is good for all Ontarians, but do we know if companies are getting access to ministers who are then making policy? I mean, to me, it is... It is highly, highly ethical, unethical, if not conflict of interest. Well, the thing is, of course, every government makes rules that suit itself. And this government has been a classic at making rules that suit itself. It said recently that it's going to be cutting back on on union and corporate donations, and yet all manner of these things are still very legal. The advertising side hasn't been touched. Uh, This particular issue of the ministerial aides going out and basically selling access, that's what they're doing. They're selling access. It's like banana republic politics is what it is. But once again, if we the voters... Uh, if we, the voters, uh, permit this to go on by re-electing these kinds of governments, then I guess they're going to continue to bend the rules to their advantage. And, and you're right. They're not. This is not an exclusive to liberals. I mean, all politicians oh, kind sure, of make the sure. loopholes to work but for this, themselves. This, this Ontario situation is quite an outrageous mess. I mean, sure, money goes to all politicians of all parties. That's a given. But there are way more stringent rules in other jurisdictions than there are in Ontario. The Globe and Mail's Adrian Morrow also uncovering what you had had kind of uh, touched upon that now we're hearing the uh, financial, you know, 
accountability officer, the one that warned us that the debt will be $50 billion more and warned the liberal governments to slow down in spending, um, also now coming out and saying, hey, we're not even being told the right information. And so uh, you did touch upon this. I mean, how is that possible that they're not giving proper information to the guy that's supposed to hold them to account? Well, I saw his Twitter feed, Adrian Morris' Twitter feed, and he showed some uh, page, you know, some gra- some page grabs from some of the reports, which state very categorically from the financial accountability officer that he could not obtain certain, uh, you know, certain information that was requested from them. So it's stonewalling. I don't think there's anything more complicated to it. They're just not giving it to him. Right. And we're in the summer and it's a slow news cycle and a lot of people are away. And I think they're counting on the fact that these headlines won't get out. But it was just last week that the premier herself had to change the rules when it was exposed by uh, this particular reporter that we were seeing a pay for access uh, to politicians. And yet this is, you know, to me, it's like you're you're telling us you're going to balance the budget. You're not giving proper numbers or you're not giving, you know, information to those who need to hold you account. We've got ministers coming out saying that they're getting access. I mean, the, to me, it's just like a whole bunch of unethical behaviors going on right now. Totally true, and but it's been the case for some time. And you're right, it's the middle of summer and people aren't as tuned in. But that being said, these issues aren't going to go away. And I know they're, they, they keep pur- purporting that they're going to balance the budget. And of course, if they're not giving out the data, they can pull all kinds of fast ones behind the scenes and move money around from one pot to another, pretend it's balanced. But you will notice that debt, the, the real bottom line is that debt keeps going up. If you have a balanced budget, that debt stops going up. That's the whole point of a balanced budget. Uh, and indeed, if you, balance, if, if you start to actually have the odd surplus, which I will <laughs> be shocked if we see anything like that, but then the debt starts to go down. And we did see this happen at the federal level and in some other provinces over the last number of years. So, you know, on the one hand, they're saying we're going to balance the budget, but on the other, we see the debt projections just keep going up. And I'm sorry, the two just don't wash. Yeah, and now I'm, I'm reading reports that the uh, Ontario government may, in fact, uh, follow the lead of the Vancouver, of BC's uh, premier, in uh, putting in a tax on foreign uh, ownership, this big issue that's driving up housing costs. And I'm thinking, my God, this is, this is a disaster in the making. Why would they meddle in the market? Most people's homes are the biggest investment they have. And if the government gets involved in taxing this, uh, it could lead to a real disaster for those you know, who are homeowners. Of course, because there's a lot of people. There's no question. The high prices are, are problematic for, for new sure. people. Try, you know, new young people often trying to get into these various markets. Um, but, yes, I mean, government meddling in any market tends to just mess it up even more. And we've seen other countries try to do this kind of thing with disastrous results. Also, people in the real estate business um, who, whose livelihoods are dependent upon you know, a lack of meddling of this kind by governments, they could see their livelihoods uh, sharply reduced overnight with these kind of dumb policies. So, I mean, whenever this particular government, which has been inept on every front, and all they can see is more and more and more tax wherever they look, when they meddle in any market, I think we should all be very, very afraid. Yeah, and I say that to the BC Premier as well, because, look, I, I get that there's a problem. There's a huge problem, the fact that people can't afford to buy homes in, in cities across Canada. It is a huge problem. But I worry uh, that not only no one buying, you know, from other markets, let's say China, if, if they're, they don't care. They'll pay that tax. It will not affect them. They're just parking their money. But it will affect those who have investments in homes. 
Well, the other thing is, Alex, that uh, there's quite a lot of taxes you incur when you buy a house. If governments really wanted to do something sensible, maybe they could do something about reducing those taxes, not imposing another one. Yeah. And so I know, look, we are, are still a ways from, from an election, but I have to ask you, where the heck is the opposition right now? Where is Patrick Brown? Where is Andrea Horvath? And why are they not out there being seen and heard and giving alternatives or other options to people uh, looking maybe for a bit of hope right now? Well, I think they're out there, but they're out there in a very low-key way. And I, I would suspect, and I mean, this is my speculation, right? <laughs> I, I don't read their minds, <laughs> but uh, I would think it's precisely the rationale that you're saying, which is it's two years away from an election. But, you know, the way, the way as you know, I've worked in the sort of quasi-political sphere for many, many years now, and, you know, the first two years of a government tend to be them doing their super activist things, often things they, they know taxpayers aren't going to like, and hoping in that second two years of their term they can do all the nicey-nicey things and, and, and you know, focus the mind for the next election. But I think it's a big mistake for anybody, to, to any party or leader or whatever, to hold back just because we're two years away. It takes a long time to change public opinion. And I can tell you from the perspective of working Canadians and what we're doing, we believe it's important to be active all the time because you have to change people's points of view. And we haven't seen, I mean, in a lot of other jurisdictions, people would have, you know, pitchforks in the street if these kinds of policies that harm the majority of people so badly were, were being implemented. And we Ontarians have been amazingly uh, low-key and, and, and very quiet about this. But I think I, it, the opposition should be out there beating the drum. Both of them should be out there beating the drum hard right now, you know, talking about the litany of horrible policies tax increases, things that have hurt, hurt Ontarians so badly. They should be out there beating that drum because you don't change people's points of view overnight. You don't come out a few months before an election. You have to be there all the time. Well, especially when you've got people saying, who is Patrick Brown? Even yeah. I have my, I, I know him just through work, but I don't, who are you? Who are you, Patrick Brown, and why should I trust you? And I think he's going to have a real problem with it. I know he's got a very good ground game. He's out there making, you know, connections within communities. But a lot of people don't know who he is. And, and you know, whereas Kathleen Wynne is very, very well known. And, and I, I do agree with you. I think both opposition and any politician Anybody who underestimates the power of this party is stupid because the one thing the liberals do very well is mobilize and they are strong. And you can already see Kathleen Wynne two years out making changes. So she's changed the face of her cabinet. She reversed her decision on epilepsy funding, which, you know, Under she had. Yeah, yeah, only. Yeah. And they've only had 13 years to do it. But you can already see that they're trying to make nice with the doctors. Oh, they're they're trying to pre-election mode. No, no question. It's, it's the second half of the mandate. But you're absolutely right. People, our opposition leaders should be very high profile right now. It's the summer, too, so they're probably at the barbecue circuit and all that kind of thing, which is well and good. But if by the fall we don't see them take a big, you know, a big leap forward in terms of their, their uh, public presence and whatnot, um, I think that's really foolish on their part. And don't forget, Alex, don't forget that the, the liberals have counted on the public sector unions who rip off you and I on every possible measure all the time to funnel tons of money into their 
campaigns. They can come out with the ugly messages about the opposition parties, and the Liberals don't have to wear it. Right, so in other words, they produce the attack ads that... They can count on that group, too, which is, again, that should be illegal, too, in my view, and it is illegal in pretty much every other jurisdiction. Yeah, and I mean, I would ri- remind the public service—you uh, know, the public service—any any raise you have gotten from this government has more than been clawed away in all these increases of taxes, whether it be the carbon pricing or the HST to the carbon pricing, which we're now just learning about, or the raises in hydro. So you may have gotten your three percent, but you have lost way, way more with all the the, the scandal and the corruption. Well, not only that, but. Ultimately, listen, this government is heavily indebted. This province is heavily indebted because of this government's policies. And if somebody working for government and getting their paycheck from the government, from we we private sector taxpayers, if they don't think ultimately that's going to bite them in the butt, of course it's going to. When there's no money, guys, there won't be any money for you either. Yeah, eventually something's going to give, and it's either going to be the private sector that just gives up or uh, something else. Catherine, thank you so much. Thank you, Alex. That is Catherine Swift joining us from... Sorry, I turned my mic off. Bad Alex. Uh, she's uh, joining us from Working Canadians, and uh, you can follow her on Twitter, but they, they essentially get out information that I think the opposition members should be doing. It's their job. Patrick Brown and Andrea Horvath have to step it up. Reporters shouldn't have to do this kind of work. Uh, of course, we should have to do this work, but they shouldn't be the ones uh, constantly having to look for this. This is there at Queen's Park. Patrick Brown, Andrea Horvath can get these stories out. Uh, but for whatever reason, they just think that they can kind of gear up, as Catherine says, during election time and say, hey, bad, you're bad, you're bad, and Kathleen Wynne is bad, and don't do that. No, that's not going to cut it. You have to earn the votes from Ontarians who are desperately, I think, looking for an alternative. So there are votes to get. But for whatever reason, um, I'm not sure that uh, we've got people out there that are willing to do the work for them. Um, We'll we'll wait and see. But nonetheless, we're going to continue bringing you these headlines because they just kind of keep coming out, dribbling out. So they are there. And you should know about them. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Yet again, yet again, I think again and again is is the way we have to uh, uh, sadly go about this. But another horrific attack playing out, this time in a church in small-town Normandy. And according to reports, two knife-wielding hostages entered, or hostage-takers entered the church during a morning mass, took two priests, two nuns, and worshippers hostage. The standoff lasted about an hour, and a nun was able to pull an alarm for police to arrive. But what happens next, according to authorities, is the men outside yelling Allah Akbar from the steps, from the steps of the church, The armed men sliced the neck of one priest, killing him, and severely injured another. Both terrorists have been killed by police, and ISIS has since now come out and claimed responsibility. And now it's emerging that the church was on a kill list of one of the suspects who was involved in an attack in Paris last April. President Hollande again went to the scene where he reiterated his country is at war. We are facing a group of IS who has declared war against us. We should face up to this war using all the means within the respect of the law. So that is a speech that President Hollande is uh, giving over and over. And sadly, uh, they've accepted this or it appears that they have, uh, you know, accepted this as the new norm, which to me sounds an awful lot like defeat. Let's bring in Robert Spencer of Jihad Watch. And he is one of the best terror experts out there. And I'm absolutely pleased that you can join us. Hi, Robert. 
Hi, Alex. Um, what, if any, significance does this particular attack have that the others don't? The uh, attack directly on a church is very significant. It's part of a hit list, as you mentioned, that uh, the Islamic State has of Catholic churches, so that we can be sure there are going to be many more such attacks. But this is the first, and it shows that there is a, that there's a deadly earnest to the Islamic State's repeated calls to uh, Muslims in the West to mount attacks against civilians, particularly in France, and that uh, France is, as Hollande says, at war and needs to start acting as if it is, which so far really has not been doing. Yeah, it's interesting, and we'll touch upon that, uh, you know, in just a bit, but I, I want to kind of touch upon a few things that you say, is that this is a new norm. So would this attack, given that they were able to kill an 86-year-old priest on the steps of a church, would this signal to ISIS, you know, a massive win and signal to others? Oh, yeah, absolutely. That uh, the church is on the list, even though authorities know about the list. Authorities are not guarding these churches. These people are completely vulnerable, and so they can just go up and uh, commit these atrocities in broad daylight and know that authorities aren't going to come on the scene until it's too late. And so, you know, we've seen this wave of attacks. We've seen, but you know, Bastille Day attacks, the Charlie Hebdo, the Bataclan. I mean, the, the, this is, I think, number six in France, number five in, in France. And you're right, the president uh, has declared war, but he did that a long time ago. But yet it doesn't seem to be changing anything. These are just words. Right, exactly. At the same time that he's declared war or that he's recognized that he's in a war, he's taking in massive numbers of Muslim migrants among whom the Islamic State has already vowed to plant uh, jihadis, and they have already done so. Remember the two of the jihadis from November who killed 130 people in Paris had just come into Europe as refugees from uh, in Greece in October. Angela Merkel, obviously, in light of the attacks in Germany, there was four, four in one week. And that does not include the mass shooting that we saw uh, at the McDonald's. But, you know, she announced uh, her government announcing that they are going to increase police and screening for migrants. But, uh, you know, I'm not a a professional in this, but I'm looking at that. That's very reactionary. The problem is already there, is it not? Yeah, absolutely. See, the problem is actually saying we're going to increase police. This is not a police problem. This is a war. That would be like saying after on December 7th, 1941, that a group of Japanese men have attacked Pearl Harbor. But let's not rush to conclusions, or, and we're trying to find out what their motivation could possibly be. And for treating it as if, and each one of them is going to be investigated as a criminal investigation. There's a difference between a criminal action and a war. We're in the middle of a war, but all authorities in the West are still pretending that these are a series of separate and discrete criminal mm-hmm. actions for which each needs an investigation, each needs a determination of motive, and so on. Actually, the motive is abundantly clear and doesn't need investigating, and to divert attention, uh, to, to, to give it to the police all the time on this is to misdiagnose the problem. Right. And I think that's a really, really important point that you raise is that, you know, we get these reports that, you know, these lone wolf one offs, you know, that are happening to the point there now where people don't even pay attention to them anymore. We seem to be coming numb to this, uh, these these attacks. And in doing so, you know, the problem's just getting bigger and bigger and we're not treating it properly. Right. Exactly. That this is a unified ideology, a unified ideology from a state. It's, a, it's not a state that the rest of the world recognizes, but it's the state that governs territory larger than Great Britain. It's, it's a real state in that sense. 
and it's at war with France, with the United States, with Canada. And so it's the longer we pretend that these things have, don't have this unifying ideology, and the more we fail to confront it with that ideology in any effective way or even to acknowledge its existence, the more it's going to continue to advance and the more of these kinds of incidents we're going to see. So, so in light of this latest attack, you know, I, I look to our government officials to see what they said, and reaction from our global affairs, which would be, you know, the same as Secretary of State, is, he said, of sadness. We are saddened over this, you know, the death of these hostages. And I find that quite appalling. I mean, this man was hacked to death on the steps of a church, and all we react with is sadness, not outrage. Isn't that defeatist? He ought to be resolute and say, we're going to make sure that there is nary a priest in all of Canada or anyone else who suffers the same fate. And we're going to be absolutely uh, ruthless against this threat and stop it right now in its tracks. That's the kind of response that we see. We need to see. We need to stop with all these memorials and all this weepy uh, breastfeeding and, 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 and prayers for France, prayers for Paris, prayers for Brussels, prayers for San Bernardino, prayers for everybody, but no action and no, uh, uh, no real strength in the face of this. And that only emboldens the jihadis. Right, because I would have to think from the outside looking in, they're looking at uh, a guy like uh, the President Hollande and saying, you're at war, but you're at war on your own because no other NATO leader or no other world leader is joining you. Exactly, right. And not only that, but everyone is saying that this has nothing to do with Islam and this has nothing to do with the Muslims who are streaming into uh, our country. And the thing is, obviously, there are many, many peaceful Muslims who are never going to be waging jihad against the West. But to act as if this is not a problem that has anything to do with Islam is simply to deny reality. These people always ground their actions in the teachings of Islam. And they always explain them and justify them on that basis. And they always make you recruit them among peaceful Muslims by referring to that. We have to be able to confront the ideological wellsprings of this problem if we're ever going to have any hope of dealing with it. But at what point do the people of France, you know, uprise? I mean, President Hollande is now, you know, he keeps going to these photo ops over these terrorist attacks, and yet he's still in power and nothing's changing. Do you get the sense that there's going to be some kind of uprising of people in Europe? Yes, I think that the Brexit vote in Britain was an indication that there already is great dissatisfaction among the people with the uh, political and media elite, and that their hegemony is now being decisively challenged. And it's precisely because they've brought this upon themselves by their refusal to deal with this problem adequately and by their only exacerbating it with their migration policy. We're talking to Robert Spencer of Jihad Watch, who gives a lot of hard truths uh, about terror around the world uh, and comes at things in a bit of a different uh, angle, kind of just says it like it is. But do you get the sense that there are any kinds of conversations going on behind closed doors, uh, given this latest attack or this latest wave of attacks with political leaders, uh, you know, Western allies? If they are, the doors are firmly closed. Right now, there is no indication that uh, they are doing anything to reevaluate their course change course, anything. It's only been more of the same, that uh, they say, we cannot let this divide us, and so on, which is only a euphemism for saying, we're not going to challenge the Muslim community to, to work against, call upon them to work against this ideology and to make sure that they are not just condemning these terror attacks, but teaching against the understanding of Islam that al-Qaeda and ISIS represent in their communities. 
uh, we, we don't see anybody even asking for that. I mean, it hasn't even been a conversation at this uh, convention, at the Democratic convention. It was a, a, a main theme uh, at Donald Trump's, co- the, the Republican convention last week, and, and a lot of people saying it was doom and gloom, and, and apparently the world's falling. It was actually mocked uh, by the president himself, uh, and yet it's not even a conversation at the Democratic convention. What do you, it seems like such an obvious question, well, but what do you take from that? It's a glaring omission. Uh, the world's on fire here. I mean, if it were any other group, that had mounted so many terror attacks in Germany and France. Imagine if it were some radical Christian group. I doubt that the Democratic Party would be so sanguine. And that they uh, completely ignore it is just an indication of how avid they are to get Muslim votes, even at the expense of the safety of the American people. And they're pursuing these politically correct fantasies about uh, global warming and so on instead of dealing with this very real problem. Well, John Kerry, Secretary, Secretary of State, actually said last week, still, uh, despite the, the wave of attacks, that climate change is still the bigger danger. And he was referring to an air conditioning unit, saying, you know, these are more dangerous than terrorists, which I thought was a very odd statement to make, given that I think it people... Is. It's, Go ahead. It's extremely odd, because after all, uh, this is still a theory. It, it, it may have the weight of 90% of the... Uh, uh, the scientific class behind it. But, you know, the, the scientific class does not have a very good record when you look back in history in terms of always being right on things. And uh, the fact is that they could be wrong about this. There is no, uh, there's no mass death from extreme high temperatures. As a matter of fact, it was, it's been quite cool uh, over the last few years. And the, the idea that this theory takes precedence over this global movement of people who are killing innocent civilians hacking a priest to death in a church and killing innocent civilians all over the place on a more or less daily basis now. It shows a denial of reality of immense proportions and ought to disqualify John Kerry from any high office. But unfortunately, he represents the dominant mainstream view. So what is the turning point? I mean, you we've been talking about this issue for four or five years. I mean, it used to shock us. Uh, what's, what's the turning point for when people just say, enough? Because I myself and, and other people I've talked to, I'm, not, I'm no longer shocked by this. I'm just really fed up with it. I'm just angered by it all the time that nothing's being done. I think, the, Alex, you're a representative individual in that regard. People are getting more and more fed up. And, I, of course, I don't know when the t- tipping point will be, but I know that it's coming. And I wouldn't have even said this to you if we'd been discussing this at this point last year. But a lot has changed in the last year with the Brexit vote, with the candidacy of Donald Trump, what everyone thinks about him. He represents a decisive repudiation of the elite class and the, uh, the, the views about terrorism and about many other issues that they have been insisting upon for years. And that's only going to grow. If people think this is all just going to go away they're going to be uh, uh, quite surprised. Does the change happen, uh, you know, is it going to be the catalyst an attack in Europe, or is it going to have to wait again till it comes to Canada or the United States? I would guess, and of course it is just a guess, but I would guess that, yes, it'll have to happen here in North America, that uh, North Americans, American, uh, people in the United States in particular, just don't really care about Europe. I don't mean to sound... Uh, 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 disparaging about that, but something happened. I mean, if a priest had been hacked to death in New York City, it would have been a very much bigger thing than it is today with regard to this uh, uh, this, this incident in France. And so
So I think that it, it is going to happen here, unfortunately. And when it does, things are going to change considerably. But I would argue with you, Robert, that if it did happen in New York City, we wouldn't be talking terror. We would, we would be talking mental illness. And I don't say that to be yeah. trite. I would, I would say it would instantly be characterized as mental illness. A few days would go on, and then it would quietly come out that, oh, yes, it was ISIS-inspired. You're probably right. Uh, unfortunately, that's been all too often the case. It took six months for the FBI to admit that when a Muslim murdered four people at a Marine recruiting station in Chattanooga last year, that it wasn't mental illness but ISIS. So yes. I think you may well be right in that regard. So in other words, I feel like a lot of people are just being dulled, uh, dulled over time just to kind of just accept it. So when the French prime minister does come out and say, France, this is a new norm, you're going to have to, you know, get used to it. Uh, I feel like it's something that they're saying to all of us. Yes, yes. And yet I, the, the only hope we have in that case is that people are not willing to get used to it and not willing to accept it, at least some people, and that number is going to grow. I want to keep you on the line, Robert, because I do have a comment from Virginia, and maybe she has a question for you. Hi, Virginia. Thanks for coming into the conversation. Hi. What a really uplifting conversation. So to the point. Thank you ever so much, Robert and Alex. Look, at my, gra- my granddaughter, who's a very young girl, was in Germany, in Munich, at the time of the attack last week, which sent ice cubes down my spine. Um, talking to her father... Uh, and being on the internet with them over over a period of time, there is a massive, angry movement, an upswell, a boiling pot, in Poland, Romania, Hungary, Germany, and France against this entire thing, which Robert is speaking of, which we are asleep at the wheel here in the West, but it is not being broadcast or monitored or... Uh, uh, it's not in the, the mainstream media, but there is something afoot. And I'm telling you, there's going to be a horrible uprising because of this. We don't hear about it in the media. It does not mean it's not happening. And uh, I, th- I think we're in some very dreadful times. And if you notice also, Alex, targets of these particular ISIS movements, one of them is uh, uh, a beach where people are not, uh, according to them, properly dressed. Mm-hmm. Secondly, a drinking establishment or halls where there's dancing and there's music or theaters where there's productions. Uh, go a little bit further, you've got places there where there are uh, people just uh, out with other men or women not being uh, uh, chaperoned. And now we have the Christian churches, which has been a terrible problem in Egypt uh, when uh, b- before the Arab Spring, and I still think it's still there. So you see the targets are there. Just watch them. Yes. And, and those are the tenants the horrible tenets of the ISIS movement. We have yep. to keep our eyes open. And I appreciate so much your insight and your call, Virginia. But, Robert, you know, sh- there are people like Virginia who are reading, not the mo- mainstream media, so they understand that this issue is is much bigger than, than is being led on. But she does talk about those soft targets. It's going on all around us. We just have our eyes closed. Yes, absolutely. I mean, the idea that this, this church yeah. was on a hit list from the jihadis and was not guarded, so, so how does that, how does that miss? Right how do they miss that, that intelligence? Well, either they didn't think that they would really do it and underestimated the threat, which I think is very, very likely, because they've generally underestimated this threat from beginning to end and top to bottom. But also the possibility is, is that they're simply overwhelmed, that there are too many churches for them to put guards at each one, mm-hmm. uh, and of course they don't know when the attack might happen and where in particular, and so they're just gambling that they'll be able to stay ahead of it well enough. But that's going to become harder and harder because their own policies are increasing the number of jihadis in our own countries 
and that's going to make the number of these attacks increase and make it harder for authorities to guard against them. Some, uh, I'd say interesting times, but Robert, we're at a point where it's, it's just sad. And uh, I do appreciate your input into this. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you, Alex. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.